Good people bring out the good in others. And Francis J. Kong is the author of that statement. But how do you put this to practice in a challenging workplace or when serious problems arise? A family man, an entrepreneur, business consultant with decades of experience, a prolific author, we will hear today about the power of having the right attitude. Please join me in welcoming Francis J. Kong to the stage. Thank you. David, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good afternoon. Can you guys look at the person beside you and say good afternoon? How many among you are excited to be here because you know there's so much stuff you can learn? Raise up your hand, please. Fantastic. Next question. How many among you are excited to be here because there's nothing better you can do this afternoon? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I normally very limited time for me. I normally start my presentation by asking permission, which I'm going to do right now. Will you permit me to first introduce to you the family of mine? And we normally travel together, but my wife couldn't make it because my eldest daughter is going to get married next week. And uh, let, me, let me first introduce you, the Lilia and I. By the way, I'm the one on the left. Lila and I were celebrating our 38th wedding anniversary this year, and uh, she's my high school sweetheart. I always call her my one and only treasure, and treasurer as well. Very important to understand that. Uh, how many among you are married? Raise up your hand. Fantastic. How many among you are happy? There's a reduction in hands. Can I introduce you my kids? You know, in the eyes of parents, they still look like kids to you, but they're not exactly young. My son, Brian, is 36 years old now. He's very single and available. <laughs> He's into this Leica photography thing. He's a musician. He plays the drums for a famous local band in Manila, Philippines. And he is now together with his Japanese partner, Shinji. They now run a chain of restaurants. My daughter, the one who got to getting married, is beginning to build a name for herself. I'm beginning to be known as, are you the daddy of Hannah Kong? And I say, yeah. <laughs> Parents, let me ask you a question. Aren't you happy when your children outperform you and outshine you, right? Yes. And she's doing wedding gowns and cocktail dresses. About five years ago, we sent her to Paris, where she studied embroidery in a school owned by House of Chanel. And we have not yet recovered our investments yet. <laughs> ROI is too long. Uh, these are personalities is dressing up. My youngest, Rachel, graduate multimedia. She's now working for the best employer in the world, her father. <laughs> Sweetheart, stand up so the people can get to know you. It's her birthday today. Happy right? birthday. Go. All right, so you can just leave the presents and the gifts by the door. <laughs> Last year, we had a very intimate, personal, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, the type of conversation that touches the heart. As I said, sweetheart, you've been serving your dad so well, I've decided to increase your salary. <laughs> And she looked at me and she said, Dad, what are you talking about? You're my father. I'm your daughter. You don't have to do that. She says, I want profit sharing. 
So effective this is now my boss is the COO. COO doesn't mean child of the owner. It means the chief operating officer of my consultancy company. How many among you are married again? How many among you are parents? How many among you have teenagers? Mm. If you are a parent and you have teenagers, will you agree with my observation that I say running a business is easy, managing your career, that's peanuts compared to raising up teenagers, huh? Man, that's the hardest job in the world. That's why David, one mother, complains. He says, now I know why certain animals eat their young. One father was reviewing the report card of the son. Look at the son. Then look at the report card and proudly boasted, my son is a child of the universe. So far, no signs of intelligent life. <laughs> Today, I'm going to propose to you that the power of positive attitude now permeates not only in the workplace, but more so also in the family as well. Is that a good deal? Yes. Okay. Now, now that we've got everything taken care of, oh, I forgot. I, let me give you a little brief background. I'm in business. I still am in business. I average about 300 plus talks in a year. And this session now, this marks my 53rd for the year as well. I mean, if you love what you do, it's no longer work. Am I right? And so I go from places to places. I do trainings for brands and companies and executives. And this is essentially I, I train on leadership. I myself am an entrepreneur, so I love what I do. And I meet all sorts of people. How many among you here in this room, you are familiar with a famous motivational speaker named Zig Ziglar? Zig Ziglar with his southern twang. I'll never remember him saying my company, by the way, represented his training programs in the Philippines a couple of years ago. He passed. Zig Ziglar's famous line says, it's not with his, uh, would you permit me to use his southern twang imitation? He says, it's not your aptitude, but your attitude that determines your altitude. And that kind of makes sense. And that's the reason why as early as many, many years ago, when these kids of mine, they're all grown up, when they were growing up, I make sure that the positivity of the attitude that is trained in them would be very important because that's going to help them through life. When we take a look at the word attitude, let's take a, a technical look at what that word means. Attitude simply is now called a uh, it's a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. If you take a look at that description and definition, courtesy of Wikipedia, well, there are three key components that you will find. Scratch out all the minor words and what do you find? What do you find? You find thinking, you find feeling, and you find behavior. Those are the three main components because attitude is not something mystical, neither is it mysterious. It is something that governs the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we behave. No one is exempted from this. Business people, government people, children, parents, even church-going people, they all have their different attitude that serve as a blessing to others or sometimes it robs the blessings from others as well. Now, how many among you would know of certain people whose attitude brings out the worst in you. There you go. I hope they're not with you today. Right? 
And how many among you are constantly encouraged and inspired in the presence of the company of certain people? Raise up your hand. Whether you like it or not, you and I, we're never alone, are we? In our conscious and subconscious actions and words, we always affect the people surrounding us. Life, ladies and gentlemen, operates on ideas. You got to think about it. Everything that you and I, we do, we think, we feel, they are based on ideas we have accumulated over time. The very famous Dallas Willard, a philosopher in the U.S., he passed a couple of years ago. He says, you and I, we pick up ideas every day like a coat or a jacket, pick up flints. Everywhere we go, we are bombarded by a lot of ideas. And today, don't get me started on social media. Everything is there. And that's why those ideas permeate. And the uh, unfortunate thing, but the reality of things is that I find a lot more negative messages happening all around me. Don't you? There seem to be an overabundance of negative things and messages that surround us from the very moment we wake up in the morning. Let me give you an example. Every morning when I wake up, I fight against negative messages that surround me everywhere. This is why, may I make a suggestion? Don't wake up in the morning watching the news. News are bite-sized tragedies. I mean, the reason why they call it news, they concentrate more on the negative ones because bad news sells and good news don't sell at all. We are permeated. We have, we have to fight the constant bombardment of negative images that's happening around us. And human beings have a, have a propensity towards exaggerating negative, and then we conveniently discard and forget the positive. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I want you to answer me. What do you call the device that controls traffic? You're, you're supposed to answer me when I ask you. <laughs> What do you call the device that controls traffic? Traffic light. What's another name for traffic light? Stop light. See how negative they are? Why not call it the go light? Next question. What do you, what do you call the device that wakes you up in the morning? See, you haven't done anything. You're already alarmed. Zig Ziglar says, why don't you call that an opportunity clock? The moment you wake up and you were awakened by that ugly sound, it is a reassurance that there's another opportunity for a brand new day, right? And this one I'll never understand. Why do they call airports terminal? <laughs> and just before you land, some dude would speak over the public address system and say, and now we are going towards our final destination. <laughs> but attitude is a choice, isn't it? And so, one thing I have learned in life in my own experience as a parent, and more so in my experience as an entrepreneur, dealing with so many people, it is that life is never what happens. It's how we take it. A mentor of mine, a very famous um, motivational speaker, author, Dennis Wakeley, still around, he says, you can put two prisoners inside the dungeon. Both will look up. One will see the bars, the other one will see the stars. If you're bright and optimistic, what would you see? Stars. If you're a pessimist, what would you see? The person seated beside you. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And that's why here's 
a couple of things I want to share with you that is extremely important. There are always two components to every person. And this is one thing that I share, especially with the young people today. There's the doing part, and there's always the feeling part. Tragedy always happens when the person begins to react to things based on the immediate feelings that control the very actions, rather than taking the time to master the moods and emotions and letting the rational mind work first and then decide whether they should act or not. Right now, I'm feeling the urge of, this is not my plan, David, but would you permit me to deviate a little bit and perhaps put my thinking cap on as a business leader, leadership training person, and then share with you what I think would be the most important critical skills you and I need to have, especially with our kids. Would that be good for you? Okay. That's why I never follow scripts. I would change, and there's nobody else who can, who can assist me apart from my daughter. She knows how to catch up with my sudden change in script, and that's why I, she is totally irreplaceable. Technology now drives the pace of change. And perhaps tomorrow I might have a repeat of what I'm going to share today because tomorrow I'm going to have a master class on leadership. Here are the critical skills that you and I need to have in order to not only just survive but thrive in the digital disruptive economy that totally changes the way you live, the way I live, the way businesses run, and the way life is lived every day. Well, if you're interested, say, I'm interested. Here are the critical skills. Number one, you and I need to have problem-solving solving skills. This may not seem as easy as it appears. Problem-solving is a mindset. Skills is competence. When a person realizes a challenging situation, you approach it with an attitude of wanting to solve a problem that is existing. But at the same time, you also need the competence to be able to solve the problem. That's the reason why today my warning to the young people all over the place is you got to be very, very careful and don't just attend any seminars being given by motivational speakers who mouth cliché without really giving you the depth and the content of what you need to do. This is no longer the time when you can afford listening to people who say, you can do it. Oh my goodness. How many among your parents raise up your hand? It's about time we also reevaluate the cliché and the things that we teach our children as well. It is a very dangerous thing to say, you can do it as long as you put your, your heart and hands into it. That's not true. Imagine you are Shaquille O'Neal, and you tell him, you can do it. Mommy, I want to be the, board, the best horse jockey in the world. And you say, that's possible. No, it's not. He's bigger than the horse. <laughs> I have never told my kids, you can do anything you want to do as long as you put your heart into it. I've always wanted to do slump dunk. I still can't do it. Optimism should be tempered by realism. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, I'm in business. I can't be optimistic all the time. Can you imagine a basketball coach behind 20 points, last two minutes to go, we will win. That doesn't make sense. 
That's why today is the time when young people and my children need to do due diligence, to study, to understand the reality of things. And cliché are very dangerous things. One of the recent books that I've read is today, because of social media, we have created new experts. Suddenly, bloggers now take over the blogosphere, and they now become masters, and they become geniuses in their chosen field. Suddenly, you find a lot of people doing trainings on leadership and giving talks about certain things, but they've never led anybody in their lives before. Clichés are very dangerous. We need to go to the meat and the content of things. Problem solving is a mindset. It's an attitude. Attitude, by the way, is posture. Your posture in saying this is a difficult situation, but it's just a problem I need to solve, and yet we got to have the competence to be able to solve that problem. And so problem-solving skills. I have encountered a lot of young people now who will say, Ma, look at the education. It doesn't serve me one bit. Look at Mark Zuckerberg. Look at Bill Gates. I mean, look at Michael Dell. All of these guys are billionaires today, and they all dropped out from college. Have you ever heard young people saying that? So how do you respond? I said, yes, of course. <clears throat> but yes, what colleges did they drop out from? <laughs> you can't even qualify. You're thinking of dropping out. Number two, critical thinking. Critical thinking now is enabling yourself to hold opposing ideas or different ideas in your mind, withholding judgment, and then having able to evaluate and assess each one so that maybe the ideas can be used in its proper context or proper timing. You know, the antithesis to critical thinking is social media, fake news, and bashing. Suddenly, young people today no longer have the diligence or the patience to open an article, do due diligence, compare this opinion with another one. They read the headlines, they read two paragraphs, and then they form their conclusion. Not a very good thing. I always remind young people and say, hey, thinking is the key towards making the right decision, which brings me to the next one. Number three, it's emotional intelligence. I was in a conversation with a Hollywood producer. His name is George Wade. And George Wade talked to me, if you want to find what his works are, you, you, you can just simply try to take a look at the old DVD of the movie, The Return of the Pink Panther, starring Steve Martin and Beyonce. George Wade himself produced that movie. George asked me this question, Francis, would you like to know what Hollywood is all about? I said, yeah. He says, Hollywood is all about emotions. Hollywood will take you on an emotional coaster roller ride. And that's the reason why in almost every film, it is standard practice to infuse what? A car chase. And a lot of our young people today, they're bombarded with a lot of films now. There was a time when it was extremely very difficult to watch movies. Today, anywhere you go, you can watch a movie, can't you? And they're taken into this very, very terrible emotional roller coaster ride. And that would explain the reason why a lot of young people today are extremely emotional. Let me ask you a question. How many among you have been in love? Raise up your hand. Oh, that was fast. <laughs> Next question. How many among you have been hurt because of love? 
Next question, how many among you have hurt others because of love? Next question, how many among you have done some pretty dumb things because you were in love, you were not thinking? There you go. The reason why I average 300 plus talks in a year because I keep on giving talks to students and teachers and parents. And every time I talk to kids, it's amazing. Not only are they highly emotionally charged, but mental health issues today is a serious issue to consider. How many among you in Facebook? Okay, can I introduce you to my Facebook page? Don't forget the number two after my name in Facebook. I'm extremely active with my Facebook page. And the reason why this is very important for me, it is because while parents are complaining that kids are coming home, not conversing with them, not even expressing emotions, not really. Kids are expressing their emotions through Facebook and social media, right? They're not only expressing, they're overly expressing emotions. That is one facility that I use in order to communicate with the young. They ask me personal questions. I don't have an assistant doing this, but I personally answer their questions. As of last count, that page has enabled me to gently persuade 11 young people not to push through with their plans to commit suicide. And I've met four of them. That is a page where people ask me questions and ask me for advice. 10% business advice, 90% love-related issues. Emotional intelligence. There is, how many among you belong to Gen Y, by the way? Gen Y, raise up your hand. Mm -hmm. See? Uh, We know Gen X. Gen Y is the generation that came after that. Sweetheart, could you show them who the Gen Y is? Oh, there's Gen Y for you. <laughs> so I rounded out the numbers. How many of you belong to that era, 1980 to year 2000? Okay. So in other words, we called it the millennials, isn't it? This one's for you. You got to master your moods and emotions. And uh, how many among you are no longer Gen Y people? You don't have to raise up your hand. It's pretty obvious. Have you ever heard of people complaining, these young people now, they have low tolerance for pain and challenge. They're impatient. Have you ever heard people say that? And that's true, huh? I mean, today, what's the young people now? Give them jobs. I mean, if it's a little bit too too much for them, they'll begin to say, I'm so overwhelmed. Have you ever heard young people say that? Two weeks in the job, I'm so stressed. Two weeks, what if I kick them out? I mean, the the moment their boss reprimand them, and they go into a, you know, my mommy doesn't even talk to me that way. And this is not the famous expression of young people. This job is not for me. Oh my goodness. So what do you do? Why why are you acting that way? Is it personal? This job is not for me. How's how's this? So, when I was younger, and that's many, many, many years ago in a galaxy far, far away, (laughs) we hardly have any options. You stick into a job, no matter how bad it is, no matter how terror your boss is. I mean, you stick with that person, you, 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 you learn your ropes, and then you walk up, and then you climb up the ladder. Am I right? Today, young people have too many options. 
so they can just quit at any time. And their favorite expression now, being governed by their low emotional intelligence. This is say, I don't need this dress. This job is not for me. Well, I've got an advice I want to throw you, even though it's unsolicited. Can I do this? <laughs> Let me ask the mothers here in this place. Who are the mothers here? Raise up your hand. At what age does a child begin to walk? One. The first attempt to walk, does a child fall down or not? Yes. What do you do? You train, right? Here's my question. When we're in the job, do we make mistakes? Do we succeed right away or do we fail? We do, right? We fall down. What do we do? We get up, we get up, we process, we rectify the mistake, we become tougher, we become wiser, right? So, second attempt for the child. How many steps? Maybe two, right? Does the child fall down? Yes. What do you do? I mean, wash, rinse, repeat. Do the same process, right? Next attempt, maybe three, four. Have you ever heard the child say, I don't think walking is for me, duh. <laughs> the way you master your moods and emotions now will provide the intelligence you need to make right decisions. Next, values and ethics. Whether you like it or not, no matter how fast life's pace of change is being governed by technology, at the end of the day, Values and ethics will still be the foundation of everything that we do. Thomas Jefferson says this beautifully. In terms of styles and fad, we swim with the tide. But in terms of values and principles, we've got to be solid as a rock. Talents, opportunities, breaks can propel a person to the top, but it will always be integrity that will keep them there, no other way. Resourcefulness and resilience. <clears throat> Suddenly, Angela Duckworth wrote a book, and it becomes a New York best-selling book. And then I begin to hear a lot of local speakers in my country mimicking the same words. You got to have grit. You got to have grit. You got to have grit. Of course, we need to have grit. In other words, that's resilience, the ability to go through that challenging moment and learn from it. But you have to be resourceful. I mean, there are people who have the guts and the tenacity to go through adversity, but they don't have the resourcefulness to, well, what does Zig Ziglar say? A couple of years ago, he says, the height of insanity is what? Do the same thing, expect a different result. It doesn't work that way. You got to have the resourcefulness in order to find out while the determination is sticking there without giving up. But you got to have the resourcefulness to understand how to deal with it in a more creative way. Number six, creative processing. In other words, if you take a look now at these steps I'm showing you, each one is related to the other one. Creative processing now simply says, creativity is not waiting for that mysterious bolt of lightning and thunder hitting you with a moment of enlightenment. Creativity is simply looking at the same thing now with a different lens of eyes and then seeing how it can be done in a more different way. And you process that thing using creativity as well. And number seven, leadership perspective. Owning it, taking charge, stopping the blame game. One of the more important inspiring lessons I learned came from tennis legend Andre Agassi speaking in New York two years ago. He says, I used to be number one in tennis. And then I dropped down. Now my memory fails me. Is it 127 or 147? He dropped way down. 
And he says when he was down, he blamed everything. But actually, he went into irresponsible lifestyle. And then one day, it all made sense to him. He says, I got to be a leader now. I got to own my situation. And so he says, there are certain things I may not be able to control. The economy, you can't control that. Your family, their environment, you can't control that. But the things that are within my control, I take charge. With a leadership perspective, he says, the day I stop blaming other people or circumstance, I own the situation, and then I reconfigure a strategy. That's why I think Agassi is the only tennis player who came from one drop to 100 plus and then went back to being number one. That's fantastic, isn't it? This is one thing that I just added because this is so important. We need to understand how to manage ambiguity. I'm in the field of business. Many business people are scared. The key operative word in business now is disruption. Suddenly, a technology can come into the picture and disrupt an entire industry. They're scared. Now, being scared may be good for a while, but staying scared will not be good for you. You and I need to understand that everything is moving and changing, and the change is accelerating. And so we need to get used to the fact that we need to manage ambiguity. There are people in the workplace, there are people in life who would say, we just talk about it, we planned it. In fact, we went off-site and we had three days of strategic business planning and now we're going to change it, of course. What was not included in the planning is some volatile event that will happen that requires us to change plans. There was a time when doing business was easy. All you needed was a roadmap. Roadmaps come in terms like annual business planning, two-year business planning, five-year business planning, 10-year business planning. There was one Japanese company that boasted of having a 100-year business plan. I'm not kidding. That's the parent company of Canon. But what was not included in their business plan was a, what, 8.9 magnitude earthquake followed by an unwelcome tsunami that totally disrupted every single plan they had. Today, that tsunami is still happening. That's the tsunami of change. Now, I'm not saying that business plannings are not important because they are. But the roadmap is very effective and useful when the terrain is recognizable and the geography doesn't change. What happens now when you and I are entering terra incognita? What happens now when the terrain is constantly changing and the geography now transforms itself? And that's the reason why you don't just have a roadmap, you also need a compass. A compass that points to the proverbial north, helping you and I navigate our way through the uncertainties of life and business and adventure. Values, ethics, attitude, the ability to look at the opportunity rather than just to be overwhelmed by seemingly insurmountable situation. Those are the compass that you and I need. And that's why I'm very, very careful. I have had moments of adversities, but I just have to manage it very well so that my response to those activities and those adversities will come out as something that is positively useful and educational that I can pass on to my kids. I only have a few more years left in this decaying planet, but I would love to see 
that my kids have a wonderful future, that they will take a look at the world as a wonderful place full of opportunities that they can make a difference in. And it all starts with having a very positive but realistic attitude. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Francis. That's great. Uh, very insightful, very um, from the heart, which I love about your presentations. We have time for a number of questions, if anyone would have a question. But if anyone doesn't, you can start thinking about them. And then I get to have the first question. I'll leave you with this again. Okay. You've um, mentioned something in one of your other discussions about preparing for the future. And I know that many of us in the audience and, and myself in my career in shopping center business, we're always interested to find out if there's something we can do that will better enable us to manage the future and the change. Being surrounded by a lot of skeptical, cynical, and very negative people, I think over the years I have developed the habit of having my alarm system go up and say, this is one time when I have to be very intentional with my response not reaction. Well, I owe this to Zig Ziglar. I would consider him my mentor for many years. Responses are always better than reaction. He says, if you go to a doctor's clinic and the doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you, you are reacting to the medicine. Is that positive or negative? Negative. What if the doctor says, I'm happy to tell you, you are responding to the medicine, positive or negative? And I've never forgotten that. I said, mm. rather than reacting, to the very spirit of negativity that's surrounding me. I have to raise up my alarm system and then say I have to be very intentional in responding to the situation and perhaps I might just be the person that can turn that very mood around. So that's how I would do it, David. Thank you. That's great. Anybody else out there with questions that they might want to ask? Yes, go ahead. Uh, you said there, there are two components uh, of young people which are... Uh, feeling and doing. Mm -hmm. uh, if I heard you right, like, uh, are they only in young people or if are in young people and other people, then uh, why are they more present in young people than others? Actually, it's prevalent in all people because everybody wanted to be known as young. <laughs> now, the two components, and I'm, I'm very thankful you reminded me, I think I forgot the other part that says there are two components to every person the thinking part and the feeding part. Winners and experienced people and successful people always do their way into feeling. People who find it hard to cope and who do not accomplish much are the people who always feel their way into doing. Let me expound. I don't feel like doing this. I don't like it at all. But because I know I have to do it and not start doing it, and once I, get my, once I get the ball rolling and I started acting on it, the feeling is not so bad after all. But the problem now comes when people start basing their decisions on their feelings. I don't want to do it because I don't like doing it. And then that's when all the problems arise. It is prevalent to every person too, but more pronounced among the young people. Um, my question is that how do you find motivation in a sea full of helplessness? That's such an easy question. David, why don't you answer? <laughs> <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, you and I may be drowning in a sea of adversity and negativity, but then being inspired to take positive actions is still a choice. 
And I'm not saying it's easy. But if you take a look at me, I mean, I've got years of experience in this area. And when you're in business, by the way, it is totally tragic to base your decisions on feelings alone. As a matter of fact, marketing people know this. Whenever there's difficulty and adversity and disruption, that's where you find the opportunities behind. When things are always normal and comfortable, there's practically no opportunities offered. From that basic viewpoint, I have adopted the fact that mm, while everything is very difficult, there must be a plan and a purpose behind this that can make me a better person out of it. So that will at least give us a little bit of, here's the magic word, hope. The hope that we can become better and we can do better in the midst of adversities. Uh, You mentioned eight skills. If you want to select one skill, which would that be? It's so difficult to just select one. But I would still say that uh, critical thinking is extremely important for me because everything begins with the mind. And uh, our belief system defines our worldview. Our worldview now defines our behavior. Our behavior now determines our outcome. So everything begins here. Now, some people can look at it as a hopeless situation, while other people can look at it and say, hey, man, I can make money out of this. Can I, can I give you an actual business example? When the gold rush was happening in San Francisco, everybody with a pick and shovel left their hometown, went to San Francisco to try to look for gold, and they can hardly find one. Suddenly, this person sees that while all these miners were breaking their pants in the process of scraping it through dirt, he got that piece of fabric from the wagon, and then he manufactured a pair of jeans. And then he used iron and used that as rivets. Therefore, you have Levi's jeans. While people are still looking for gold, that guy looked at the situation and found gold. So it all depends on the mind and the perspective of how we look at things. So for me, critical thinking is extremely important. Not that you can live with critical thinking alone without the other one, but thank you. Because I'm on the stage and I have the right, I'm going to ask you another question. Sure. You've written in one of your other series of books that you've, uh, this one was called Winning Attitudes for Success, and Mm -hmm. you've written this uh, statement, be a good listener. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about what you meant when you said be a good listener? Listening always involves a premeditated idea of the philosophy and the, 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 the posture in the saying. I'm sure there's many things I can learn from this person. We keep on using the old cliche that the person is born with two ears and one mouth so that we can listen more and be not really. The fact is, the reason why some people don't even bother to listen because they have predetermined expectations that there's nothing I can learn from this guy. We're polite, we don't say that, but in our actuation, we simply dismiss the person as if somebody would not be able to add value to my knowledge. And so listening now begins with saying that I'm sure this person has something to teach me that I still don't understand. And so I want to look for that gold that I can mine. Be competitive and success driven. Mm-hmm. That's another one of the uh, lines and that you've written in this book. Yes, yes. Be competitive and success driven, but aren't we all that way? Or are we not? You'll be surprised. There are a lot of people today who don't want to succeed because they're afraid of success. Success carries immense responsibilities that you have to carry. 
That's why in the workplace now, there are many young people, given the opportunity to be promoted, they'll just simply say, I don't need that additional stress. Secondly, there are people who are banking on inertia. They have accomplished much, and they say, this is it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. What they don't understand is, let me just ask you a question. How many among you, when you were in high school, physics was your favorite subject? Only two? What's the matter with you? Physics is a very important subject matter. When I was in school, physics was my favorite subject. I love physics so much, I took it three times. I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, the principle behind inertia is that when you leave inertia alone, one day inertia will stay at rest. That's why in order for us to be relevant, in order for us to be achieving things, and in order for us to be successful, we don't just want to bank on inertia alone. We want to have momentum. We have to push ourselves forward and learn and discover and interact and network and learn again. And that's the only way that we can survive. How do you strike a balance between character and confidence? What's the balance you should be, we should be looking for? When confidence goes out of control without character, then confidence becomes arrogance. When character is there character now says you are confident because you know your stuff, but you are respectful of other people's opinion as well. That entails a lot of confidence at the same time. Have you ever met people who are so boastful and rude? Have you? Oh, yes. Are they with you? No. <laughs> After so many years of doing this, Mrs., one thing I have discovered is that Boastful people and rude and arrogant people are basically insecure. And that's why pride and boastfulness is simply a good cover-up in disguise for insecurity as well. But the many taipans and the many billionaires that I have met, they're essentially very low-key, humble people, nothing to prove anymore. Yeah, so character is extremely important. So I wanted to ask you something about young people who have finished university and are going into their careers. Um, they're often looked at as unexperienced and not as important. So what's your advice for people who are still, you know, newly graduated and still looking for a path? Be willing to work for free. Oh, God. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When you're in school and you're learning, do you have to pay tuition? Now that you're starting your work life and you're learning, why should they pay you? But now you don't even have to pay them. See, that's how you look at a very difficult situation with a twist of positive attitude towards it. And then you look at it and say, I'm going to be working for you. You don't have to pay me, but I'm going to work like crazy. In fact, I'm going to outwork and outperform those guys that you have been paying for so long. And then while you're learning what? You've got additional things to put into your resume now, don't you? And by the way, when you outperform those guys out there, guess what? They'll start paying you. And then that's the time when you can say, thank you so much. Now you got to pay me higher. <laughs> we have another question in the front. Please go ahead. Yes. I know you said your favorite subject was physics, but were you a great reader or did you mirror yourself on other people? That's a very good question. And actually, I flunked high school. I'm so proud in saying I earned my PhD in high school. PhD means passing high school with difficulty. 
And let me just ask this lady, you're, you're just, you're, are you still in school? You just graduated. Good. This young lady, I'm going to do an experiment with you, all right? I will give you just five seconds to answer this question so you don't have much time to think. May I know your name, huh? Sarah, answer me. Five seconds time. Guess how old I am today. Um, 40. 40? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. These young people are so disrespectful. This <laughs> is. I'm beginning to I'm like you. I'm trying to you. be nice. Sorry. I'm beginning to like you already. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I have, a, I have a hypothesis saying that young people today are so poor with math. Three young kids invited me for a coffee because they wanted me to speak in their school, 13, 14, and 15. I addressed the youngest one. I said, can you guess how old I am? And he says, oh, oh 94. I almost <laughs> choked the guy. For information, Sarah, I'm turning 63 this May. Now, what's this? Oh, what, what, why are you clapping? Is that a reason to celebrate? At my age right now. I, I used to read four books in a month. Now I don't have the luxury of time. I read only one book, but I listen to five books every month now, and I have not yet stopped. Until today, my family knows I'm awake because the first thing I do while I'm brushing my teeth, my audio book now is opened, and I don't want to waste time because there's just so much that I need to learn in this fast-changing world. So to answer your question, the reason why I'm able to do what I'm doing right now is because of the books that have fashioned the way I think and that has uh, cultivated the way I live. I owe them to books. Good books, by the way. Nothing with the gray stuff. Okay. We have another... Uh... I can't resist that. Oh, sorry. We have another question in the middle of the room. Go ahead, please. Actually, I've been following your page for the longest in Facebook. Yes. And you said about the winning attitude overall, and it's very inspiring. But uh, in the corporate world, mm -hmm. I am just somehow you know, questioning things like, how could some people win mm -hmm. if they are rude? Mm. Like, there are top people. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you met billionaires that are low-profile and humble. That's good. But there are also people on the top level that are like, they don't care. They discriminate. They belittle women in the yeah, workforce, yeah. unfortunately. Something like that. So, yes. And they are winning. In my eyes, they are winning because they have the position. So how could there be a balance? Because we are all about positivity and that these people are, they are, I don't know if it's correct or a correct term, but they are negative on my eyes. Yes, yes. There, there's, a, there's a lot of people who are like that, right? And by the way, a position is not indicative that the person is winning. It's just a position in the first place. If you're going to be attending my leadership class tomorrow, I'm going to expound a lot on that. A position is just a position. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Here's the key. I have had one person who says, but how can I deal with my boss? I said, why? She's from hell. <laughs> She's a monster. And I said, you know what? Is she your boss? Yes. Okay. Learn from her. Not the bad things. The reason why she's still your boss because she still has some stuff that you still don't have it. Learn those stuff, and now you're in a better situation. Why? Now you learn the things you should not be. 
Don't be like her. Their behavior, their attitude, and their opinions do not define you. Your experiences, your evaluation, your actions and behavior, those are the things that form you. So you got to be careful of yourself. You can't control them anyway. All right. So the next time they are very cross and they're very rude, you know, the asset you have, give them your killer smile. That will upset them more. All right. I'm a millennial, and something that um, matters to me, and I think a lot of people around my age group, is finding purpose and living mm. with purpose. Mm. And especially if you're in a moment where you don't feel your life is mm. completely aligned with that mm. purpose, um, mm. what advice would you give to sort of find purpose in the everyday and in the present moment so that you can work towards that goal? I love that question. One of the... The top three fears of young people, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, used to be, number one, the fear of dying. Number two, the fear of speaking in public. I'm not kidding. And number three, the fear of losing their job or an uncertain future. Today, that survey has changed among the young people. Number one is still the fear of dying. Number two now is the fear of living a life of meaninglessness. That is why your age group has been responsible for a unique invention in humankind that has never been experienced before. This is now called the quarter life crisis. Older people don't even know what that means, right? And of course, number three, the fear of losing their job or something. Now, I want you to take a look at the basic difference between work and a job. They're not the same. A job is something you do that you get paid for. Work is the expenditure of energy in order to create a thing of value. That is the reason why a person may not have a job, but that person still is working. Mothers don't have a job, but mothers are working. They're immensely creating value in creating a home. You put that on your mental shelf as I bring you to the next one. There's a difference between purpose and meaning. Purpose is the effect and the difference and the worth you do for other people. Meaning is everything that refers to you. In other words, you and I will always find meaning in life when we work creating value in order to meet the purpose of helping other people becoming better. And when we have done that, that depression disappears. I'm not referring to medical depression. The depression and the feeling of meaninglessness disappear because now we're adding value to other people. And that's also the reason why I don't care what work it is. Every work has inherent nobility. We have to make our work noble. And when you take a look at the word noble or nobility, nobility simply is defined as worth without substitute. So, and the dignity simply also refers to the term worth without substitutes. So what I mean is, we put dignity into the very work that we do, creating a difference in helping other people add value to their lives as well. Suddenly, you will frame your question differently. I love my job. Is there anything more I can do? Because this job of mine is so meaningful. 
Hi, um, I'm currently a high school student, and as you said in your physics analogy, that we have to go on in life with a lot of momentum. Yeah. As I learned in school, momentum inevitably causes a collision. So how okay. do we get back up when we collide? Mm, that's physics, isn't it? <laughs> I hate that question. <laughs> I'm sorry. In every business deal that I do, I will have to have a collision. Not all collisions are bad. There are collisions now form a new collaboration that opens up to better business deals. But there are collisions wherein relationships are destroyed and then suddenly it becomes a very destructive one. Again, it all depends on how you're going to be handling it. And so when there's momentum and you keep on going, you will collide whether you like it or not. But how do you gain the biggest advantage by, number one, processing what is it that happened? Number two, learning from it. Number three, rectifying the error. Number four, going out of it now, becoming stronger and tougher and wiser. And so that collision will turn out to be a very positive collision. So don't worry about colliding. Uh, what attitude should one have when overcoming anxiety? I have written a uh, four-volume book that has sold very well, but I have purposely refused to print it again. Because four books entails a lot of inventory, and that cost me a lot. That's the businessman part of me that's operating. It was the lowest moment of my life when my partner stole the business away from me. And I remember at that time, I had to ask my entire family inside our room, and I gave them this unforgettable speech. Your dad is in trouble. Not your fault, your dad's fault. We've lost our business. There's no way we can get it back. We don't even know. I don't even know where our next meal is coming from. But I just want you to understand we have a little savings, so you, there's no need for you to panic. But when Daddy says, tighten your belts, I hope you won't complain because now I have informed you about our situation. That birthday celebrant was still a baby then. She did not understand what was happening. She couldn't understand the words, but that pathos that she felt happening within made her cry and cry and cry. That was the time when I was searching for a title for these four-volume books, and it was uncompleted at that time. Suddenly, I talked to myself, and I said, what can I do? I'm the one going all over the place, inspiring people. Now I have an excellent opportunity to put my mouth where my words are. And then I came up with the title of the book that would help answer your question. One day at a time. You live one day at a time. You pour your best into that one day beyond that. That's beyond your control. But you live one day at a time. When I'm anxious, I don't make decisions. I pray. Then when I get a little more calm, and then I'll assess the situation, wash, rinse, repeat, think, evaluate, and then make a decision. But I've always believed that this is a disruption. This collision will not probably open opportunities for me. Guess what, sir? Had that thing not happened today, I would not be doing consultancy and training and be a public speaker. And that's why in one of my posts in Facebook that gotten so many responses, I said, just when you think that things are falling apart, perhaps that is a crucial time when God is putting its pieces in its proper place. Thank you.